Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A listener production. Hey, I'm pro surfer and mental health advocate, Kubi Chapman, and this is Good Humans. On this episode, I'm hanging out with surfing legend, Tom Carroll. Tom is a two-time world champion and an icon on Sydney's Northern Beaches, where I grew up. In this first part of our two-part conversation, Tom paints a picture of just how different the Northern Beaches of Sydney was back in the day during the birth of professional surfing, while he accidentally became a political icon and how a competition gone wrong at Pipeline in 1988 cost him his third world title and taught him some hard life lessons that he still carries today. Tommy Carroll, thanks for jumping on Good Humans Podcast with me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Cooper, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm so stoked and I'm really excited for this chat because you've got a story unlike any other and some of the things that you've done in your life, in your career, uh, will probably never be done again. And some of the things that you've managed to put together, which we're going to talk about in this podcast are amazing. So let's jump right back to the beginning, early life, Tom Carroll. I've read your book and there's so many great stories in there, but what sort of family life did you have as a young kid? And what sort of was your introduction into surfing? I grew up in a, I was born into this house um, just across from Bungan Beach, uh, where Carlo Parade meets the Barangari Road. The one that comes, you know, that comes from the castle around that way. Yeah, yeah. It was on the western side of the main road, uh, which was Barangay Road. That back then there was just two lanes, just one either way. So it wasn't like three lanes, you know, six lane, you know, thing, you know, just very mm, water road now. Yeah, like like yeah, the whole Barangay Strip to Newport's like three lanes. Later it became my racetrack, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but before that. Um, I was living, um, you know, with my family there. Um, my mum passed away when I was seven and she she actually gave me a surfboard just just the couple of months before she passed during um, at Christmas um, when I turned seven. And the whole time we were living there, I remember during summer there was always someone walking up the, there's a pathway, a right, right of way access to a cul-de-sac just down our backyard. We had a long backyard big terrace backyard when our father used to make us um, rake up all the, all the mowing cuttings, you know. It was a big Saturday when he decided to mow the lawn and we were locked in to the job, Nick and I. Uh, but our sister didn't have to do it. <laughs> but anyway, Nick and I had to get in the job. But that was uh, that, and that, from that cul-de-sac and that right of way was a, was a pathway over um, up to the main road and that would lead over the road and down another pathway which would go all the way down to the beach. It was a big walk. But I used to watch this person carrying this longboard with a towel between the longboard and their head and they just walk up 
I'm going, what's that person doing, you know? I always remember that sort of image. When I got that surfboard from mum, it was like, it was a foam surfboard, a cool light surfboard, so it was super buoyant. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know you needed wax. I remember the first surf. It was, uh, well, we just went out. It was flat, almost flat, super hot day. There was this little wave every now and then hitting uh, and and I couldn't stay on the board because it was it was super slippery. It had a paint kind of a paint job over it, mm. and had a had a, like a like a racing stripe down one side. It was green with a yellow racing stripe, and I couldn't paddle. Uh, and I'd see a wave coming, and I'd just throw the thing because I didn't know what to do. But that was my introduction, and um, to the ocean on a surfboard. But I would see these surfers down the beach. And I'd just, my eyes would start to kind of drift towards what that, that what they were doing. They were riding the waves. It looked kind of surreal. From there, it was a Thursday afternoon. I'll never forget it that I actually finally stood up on the surface. We did figure out the wax thing because <laughs> <you know? laughs> we figured it out. We ended up getting this Ampole wax at the Ampole um, service station. It was basically beeswax. And we had to kind of like, because it couldn't rub it on, it, on. it wouldn't stay, it had to melt it on. <laughs> and it's tricky on a styrofoam block, uh, melting things on. But we we got it and that actually worked, stay on the board. And I finally, um, and just a little while down the track, uh, i never forget it was a Thursday afternoon, I actually stood up for the first time into the shore break in front of the surf club at Newport. And I kind of came out of the shore break, got pounded, and my dad was right there and, I, you know, he goes, oh, good dad, I just stood up for about a minute. And he goes, uh, maybe a second. <laughs> and I was like a killer. I was like, oh, dad. I'm like, really? It felt like a minute, you know? <laughs> uh, and so I was bit. Just on that one moment, I was bit. Yeah, you hooked. Uh, I was hooked. Yeah, yeah, I was so hooked. So seven years old, that was the journey. Started started that, that, that uh, summer. In 1968, wow. and uh, and and I started um, the journey, and it, it was uh, we, you know, our mum passed away a couple of months later, and and then my dad thought, oh, let's you know, get a sort sort of house up closer to the beach, so he found a block of land in Newport, and we he built a house, and I I couldn't believe it. I'm like. Whoa, how's where we're living? It was the best. It really started afresh after mum passed away. And so that was a, a walking distance, basically a bike ride. I didn't have a bike yet, but I had to earn the money to, you know, get a bike. Um, but my first fiberglass surfboard was um, $25. And I had to ask my father to, uh, you know, to borrow the money off my father and then actually get the courage up to do that. And that was another one of those postcards from the edge where you can never forget it, was plucking up the courage to ask my dad if I could borrow or maybe have. I didn't know what borrow was, you know. He actually said, oh, I'll tell you what, Tom. I said, I'll do it, but you're going to have to pay me back. You're going to have to get a job and pay me back. I'm like, I'm like t- by then I was like 10. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go and get a job. And I got a job down at local paper shop, you know, the news agent. Yeah. And I was there to at four four thirty in the morning on Saturday and Sunday morning to help roll the papers 
the big, <laughs> big, big newspapers back then uh, on the Sunday, like big, two big newspapers on a Sunday and one big one on the Saturday was, had to be rolled in this rolling machine and then the, um, the news agent owner, um, David Pitt, had uh, one of those mini moke cars, you know, with, with the, it's got like a soft top. Oh, yeah. They're like little moke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He used to pile all the papers in that thing. We'd load it all up and he used to drive the whole area around Newport and part of Avalon, the, the Bilgola Plateau. Yeah. Uh, and just throw the <laughs> throw them from his front seat and, and throw them into people's front yard as you went. So, yeah, that's... Uh, so that was like from 4.30 to 7am every morning getting a dollar fifty each morning. So I'd uh, pay it back that way. That's mm. pretty cool. That's, I love the idea that your dad drew that work ethic into you and mm. your ability to re- remember back that far mm. is so beautiful and yeah. it's so awesome, the imagery, and mm. you can see your face light up when you mm. remember those initial surf days because yeah. it brings brought so much joy, obviously, to you, your surf yeah. career and a very successful surf career it was. Mm, mm. Can you remember much about your junior competing days and when you started to realise, you know what, surfing's a career path for me or was it always just about that love of the ocean? Really it's just uh, I didn't know what I was doing competing <laughs> at first. I was I was introduced to competition surfing in what was the Peninsula Board Riders Club at Palm Beach. I used to get together with my buddy, uh, Michael Twemlow back then, we were probably 12, 13, 12, and we'd hitch on a Saturday morning, grab our boards, either hitch or get in a bus, and we'd go and, um, you know, hitch up at a, my, our buddy's place at Palm Beach uh, at um, Bod, Noen and uh, David Ravenscroft's house, and they were in the, in the board riders uh, club there called, you know, Peninsula Board Riders. And I started surfing in that club and just surfing Palm Beach. And, you know, like back then, 12-year-old, we'd, we'd, I'd just say goodbye to my grandmother who was looking after us at that time. That was with my mum's mum and, and my dad and say, oh, we'll see you on Sunday night. Yeah, I'll see you on Sunday night. There was no like, you're like 12, 13, just on a bus, gone for the weekend, didn't know where we were going. It was just the way it was back then. Mm. So today it's like. Oh, so you better call me. <laughs> you know, in the next five minutes, you better call me. Just tell me where you are. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like helicopter stuff right now. But back then it was, you know, we were out there um, competing in the club, in this club. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just going there and I won the cadet overall the year that year. And um, and I um in the club and the club president, um, Owen Ravenscroft, who was a brilliant surfer, I still love watching him surf and beautiful style. And he once after an, a club event, he said, look, would you like to surf in the Northern Beaches? And I said, what's that? Um, well, as a club, we can enter you into the Northern Beaches and we can get your entry in now. They're asking for entries. And so I, uh, I said, well, what's it mean? He goes, well, well, you know, we go and surf against all the surfers from Narrabeen. Na- from yeah, well, that's where we went to Narrabeen to mm. surf it, and and I was twelve, and all the, all the surfers from Manly all the way to Palm Beach, we all surfing against each other, and the winners go and on to surfing into the state, into the team to go and surf uh, mm. in the state championships, New South Wales. I said so. 
Oh, so what happens if you, you, yeah, so you go to the state championships if you win. And he goes, what if you win the state? He goes, oh, you go to the national championships. And I'm going, whoa, wow. So what if you win the national championships? He goes, well, you go to the world championships. I go, wow. So kind of when he said that, I'd never forget that too. It's really clear that there was a sort of stepping stone thing that the this is how and the kind of like this little spark of ambition yeah. sort of lit up. I wouldn't say that I was saying to myself at 12, I'm going to be world champion. <laughs> <laughs> but there was some sort of like kind of dream yeah. that was made up at that point that there was a way of kind of broadening out with this activity of, of competing and surfing, but I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know what I was doing when I was competing. I, I just was just going out to surf and I'd come here and come in and they'd read out the results. Oh, Tom, you got through. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, when's the next heat? Da, 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 da. It was a bit like that. There was no very raw. Yeah, I love that. It's uh, different to now. Totally different to now and we'd go, no, no one's coaching anyone. <laughs> there was no, and then we get to the, the northern beaches and never forget going to Narrabeen for the Northern Beaches event and that first one, I was down at the Cole alley. Cole Smith and stuff. Yeah, Cole Smith. He's my first view of seeing, you know, Owen pointed him out. I'll never forget that moment. He goes, hey, Tom, you got to watch this guy surf. It's Cole Smith. You watch him surf. He's, he, you watch his whole board come out. And I'm like watching him backlit. And the alley rights are going and he's just going doing vertical re-entries after vertical re-entry at the alley. Just see his, see his round tail and, you know, everything. I was like, wow. Never seen anything like it. Yeah, there's so many good talents on the Northern Beaches. And from a, such an early age, mm. obviously there's been a lot of world champs out of the Northern yeah. Beaches, Barton Lynch, yourself, yeah. and then other guys like Simon Anderson yeah. and stuff. So there was obviously a really good group of you guys coming through mm. and, going to fast forward a little bit now because there's so sure. much I want to talk to you about. Yeah, let's do that. Because there's been so much amazing things that have mm. happened in your life. One moment that I really have a lot of respect for is after your second world title, South Africa. Mm, right. Yeah. That's something that I read and something that me and through my business with the good human factor, mm. I really love to see people who stand up for things and stand yeah. up for what they value. Can mm. you talk me through that situation with, uh, I think it was 1980. The 85, after your, after your second world title. It was 1985 yep. and uh, it was May 1985, was at Bells. I'd already sort of been competing in South Africa for four years and each year I felt, you know, I, I didn't felt more more uncomfortable um, going there. And it, on the world stage at that point, uh, particularly with the United Nations, you know, black banding, uh, Athletes and so on, and 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 organisations for going there and supporting it, the uh, the apartheid, and actually regime and and seeing firsthand what was going on, I felt super uncomfortable. But uh, when it came to me being two times world champion, feeling a certain amount of like. Uh, this is where I can be heard. Bit of responsibility. And you're only 24 uh, at the time, yeah. Yeah, I was only 24 wow. and that was like, okay, okay, so I can, I don't need, I don't, I I just, I can't, I can't live with being a supporter of this. I can't. I couldn't like go, okay, does this mean I'm a supporter? If I go and compete, does this for the whole world to see and watch 
this is me going there as a world champion surfer, uh, is seen as being someone who supports apartheid. I can't do that. If you're not against it, you're for it. Like. Yeah, yeah. So that's how it was and it was a very strong issue at the time and there was a lot of lot of demonstrations around it, around the planet. There was, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, movement towards evolving beyond it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mm. And so I, I, uh, I thought, uh, you know, it was the perfect time. I just won my second world title. I had quite a lot of um, media attention just for that. So I used it uh, at that time. I actually delivered it to in, during an interview with a newspaper. It was just I didn't know how to communicate. Like as 24 years old, pretty raw uh, now today, there's... I didn't, I, I wasn't like a media machine in myself. Today people are media machines within themselves. It's amazing. So, and there's a lot of knowledge, a lot of awareness and knowledge around how to actually deliver communication. So then it was very raw. I didn't know how to communicate. I was just went, oh, look, this is what I want to do. I want to boycott uh, the, the, the event in South Africa and <laughs> just went, blew up. And I was like, it just turned into a real, lot bigger deal. And I, I, I didn't... I must admit I was naive in that sense. All I knew that I just was going to do it anyway. But I just was naive in knowing what the kind of response was going to come back to me. Yeah, you just I thought you were not going to some events. So actually, I, yeah, I said, look. I'm, it was a personal thing it seems It was like. a very personal humanitarian stand, simple. There was no, I wasn't um, trying to come at anyone other than the fact that I just can't agree with this. As a world champion surfer, I can't be seen to support it. Yeah. And that was it. And uh, and I gave my point of view and uh, over and across an interview and then all of a sudden I'm doing, you know, like press like conferences. The Prime and stuff press, like press conferences and, uh, you know, I knew that I was possibly going to lose my sponsor who was actually based in South Africa in California, but I thought maybe if the operation out of California and, and plus my my relationship with Sean Thompson might be compromised because of this, but I just needed to do it. But I didn't talk to him first. I didn't talk to all these other people first. I just went, whoa, <laughs> maybe I could have done it in another way, but it was just going to probably done a bit better. I would have done it. Uh, if I was to do it again, I would have definitely communicated in different layers. But I didn't know that then. I just was very raw and... And uh, yeah, the next minute I'm yeah with with uh, Bob Hawke and we were <laughs> talking about he was supporting me and actually helping me uh, as as a, a a young Australian who'd made a significant stand, which he fully backed. That's so beautiful. And uh, yeah, it was really cool. And uh, from there on in, it's just been an incredible journey. With that, I ended up meeting Nelson Mandela and talking with him, and it was just a beautiful meeting. That. <laughs> 
And then when Nelson Mandela said, look, Tom, thank you. You know, when he, you know, makes me cry a bit because he brings up a lot of emotion because that one moment was like it was such a powerful coming from him who'd suffered so much, like 28 years in solitary confinement. Wow. <laughs> for, for, and, and the aura that comes off someone who's been through that, who has got no, it's just completely, you know, we walk around with little, even if we're a, quite a fearless person, we still bubble with fear. Like there was just none, none of that. Someone who's com- absolutely fearless. I'm not saying someone they're doing something stupid fearless. This is solid fearlessness. This is a fearlessness we don't, I didn't, I'd, I'd never really come across, <laughs> to be honest. And I could sense it with him and his aura is very powerful. So you just get this beautiful thank you. I really needed all the support I need, I could get at that time. And I know that when I was making the decision to do it, I just needed to know it was helpful to talk to a few people. They said, look, even if you change one person's mind, one person just to question why you'd want to be that kind of person who would look at another person just because of the colour of their skin as someone to be fearful of, someone who's different, someone to actually look down upon for some reason uh, and change that. That was the key. That was it. If I could get one person to just question that, I've done my job. One of the other moments in your career that stands out to me that I wanted to chat to you about, 1988 Pipeline Interference. Yeah. So that one <laughs> could have been your third world mm-hmm. title. Talk me through that day, the emotions going through your mm-hmm. mind, more so after the call and what, how you dealt with it and how you think you might have dealt with it differently now. Okay, well, I'll go, I'll go back to the lead up into the day. It's like um, I was... I actually had a really good board, like a really good board for pipe. Beautiful 7.6 Pat Rawson uh, that we'd actually do, done a redo on a bunch of boards that weren't quite right and uh, and there's been a big lay, a big waiting period for this day and so there was quite a lot of tension coming into that last event with four of us, I think there was four of us uh, able to win the world title that day and so it was a real and pipeline was it was solid, mm. a beautiful solid. It was really beautiful. The day got, it got better but perfect in the morning. Uh, when I look back on it, the, the way I was dealing with my, my the tension, um, the, the nervous, nervous tension was not so good. I was so like wound up on that day. I was wound, way too wound up. Uh, when I think about it, for that particular rule, particularly because uh, they changed it that night, didn't they? They changed it that night. So, uh, and I'd already had interference on that ruling earlier on the year, and that was when I was way down the beach, and someone else got—I can't remember who got that on me. It was in 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 New Jersey of all places. No like, way. <laughs> How did that happen? I come in, oh, you got an interference. I go, what? What the guy was like? Yeah, this is he had priority and same you know, swell line. Same like swell line. It was deemed the same swell line. You move for the wave. I got like on, on the other side. I'm like on another bank. So it was tricky. It was good for the judges because it could keep really black and white. But it was it wouldn't make sense today. We just go, what the hell are you thinking? So uh, 
Pipeline was, you know, it was my second heat. I'd beaten Noah Budrow in the first heat, paddling out, man-on-man at pipe. It was a man-on-man. First event man-on-man, wasn't first it? First event man-on-man at pipe. It was not Pipeline Masters, it was Billabong, Billabong Pro. So it was the last event of the tour and it was all coming down. Billabong Pro was actually a mobile event. could be held at Waimea Bay, could be held at Haleiwa, Sunset Beach or Pipeline. So it had four different venues you could compete in. So you had to be ready for all these different ways. It was such a cool event. That's epic. And it was man-on-man. It was like crazy. I was paddling out on the first man-on-man heat against Noah Bud Rowe at Pipeline and I'll never forget that paddle out because it was flawless, no wind and big TPA frames coming through Second Reef. Like I'm like, oh, my God, this is like the perfect day and I'm just Froth, I'm over froth, way over froth. So I'm sort of trying to, to, to breathe and calm myself and I'm paddling out and I'm taking the, I just take the wave because there's no one else. Noah takes a little insider. I go, what's he thinking? And then I paddle out and he, and there's no one in the lineup, no one to gauge anything off. This is a very odd feeling at pipe mm. when it's perfect. I just never had that experience. Rare. So I take the wave from the, you know, the first, crazy looking wave and I took it at the, I wanted to go deeper and I kind of took it on the, just on the top of the peak kind of thing and I was cursing myself taking the drop, I'll never forget, because I wasn't deep enough. I'm going, you got to get deeper, man. It's like, but anyway, that was the kind of nervousness that I was carrying. I was just not loose enough to go deep and I felt that in that first heat. Coming up in the second heat, um, I beat Noah, uh, I went, on to the second eight against Todd Holland. And Todd Holland, in fact, was just, he'd grown up like this full hick beard. He was like, he was chewing tobacco and stuff. He was like complete classic Florida boy, you know, good old boy. Um, and I'd, I'd known him for quite a year, few years and he just made a shift and I'll never forget turning up to Hawaii in that first day driving from the airport. I went straight to pipe to have a look at it. This is a little side story. And I walked up the right away where, where the Volcom house is now to look at Pipeline and it's ugly. I mean, it's screwed up, ugly pipe and it's onshore and there's, there's kind of like crazy ones from Third Reef coming through and washing through. There's one guy out there and he's just taken off on anything. It's Todd Holland. I'm going, what is he thinking? So anyway... I got him in my heat. <laughs> <laughs> that so, guy, that yeah, one. He was on a mission and I was so nerved out uh, that I was looking for every wave, uh, every opportunity because I was two heats away from winning a world title. And I'd spent three years trying to get myself back to this position and it was quite a, a haul to get to that point. But my system was too overloaded with with that nervousness and I was just looking at every opportunity that Pipe would offer and looking at every wave. He had priority and he saw me just spin around and move and have a look at this wave when I saw him not go for it because he was further out and I thought I'd stay underneath his priority and then maybe, you know, sneak into one. It was Mm. a pretty solid one. Scared to sneak into A 10-foot wave just right on first reef and I looked down it and then I felt him go past me and it was just going to be this ugly closeout 
He actually went down, it went back door, got closed out on, got smashed. Then they get call the interference oh. out. So I go, oh my God. And I knew it straight away when I saw him go past because I knew the rule. But I'd actually, he was still a little way from me. It wasn't like he was right on me. Mm. Uh, so there was no actual interference. It was just technicality. And so anyway, I had to kind of, you know, come in and um, I sort of took a few more waves, really getting more upset, you know, getting more upset with myself, getting more kind of hard on myself. And, you know, it was just a head in my hands sort of moment. And I walked to the beach just so like shattered. But they said, oh, look, you know, they're still doing a count on the judges because I ended up winning on one judge even with that. And and so I was was easily in in the lead in the heat, but I was kept on looking for more opportunity. I was just too antsy. It's a really good lesson in that. Really good lesson. I mean, I learnt my lesson big time, but there was also, yeah, but anyway, I ended up in the back street of Keiki Heart, you know, the Keiki, um, Kainui Road and where my rental car was there and I was just in there, I was just smashing the the steering wheel with my fists, you know, like I just sort of let loose on the steering wheel and just fucking did my my knuckles in a bit. But (laughs) I was like so pissed off and pissed off at myself mostly, and really upset. And it, it, I kind of had a downward spiral from there. It wasn't, it wasn't a nice experience at all. It was like Pipeline devil- delivered me, you know, when I look at it now, delivers, delivered me my highest points and my lowest points. Mm. Pipeline delivered to me. And that experience of being at the highest point and the lowest part, point of myself is um, so significant. So I've got a deep relationship with Pipeline. It goes a lot deeper than what I even thought of. And at that time, I didn't know how much it really affected me uh, until many, many years later. I sort of came off that experience and I put so much into that year and then all of a sudden they overturned the rule because it didn't make any sense. (laughs) They said, oh, we're just going to change the rule for next year. I just couldn't trust putting all my effort into a whole year and have that happen again. I just couldn't, some deeper thing in me just said, well, I'm not ever going to put my trust into this, like the full campaign again. I've just, I'm backing completely off. I tried to do the tour the next year and I couldn't get through a heat. I was like, my head wasn't in it. Um, and I stepped off the tour about six months in and took a full break from the tour. Um, it was um, completely devastating. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to come back. I want to win events that I absolutely love, and that's the Pipeline Masters mm-hmm. and Margaret River. Both of those events I really loved and ended up winning them uh, again and, um, and doing really well with them. So, But it wasn't until like 14 years down the track and my brother's, it was a surfer's journal, did a a bunch of biographies on surfers, like a documentaries on on surfers of their time. And they did one on me and they in that there was an interview with my brother and they said, oh, so what happened? It was all about that moment. And he goes, I think at that point he lost trust with pro surfing. Mm-hmm. And I've gone, holy shit, 
he's right. And I never saw that. Uh, but I'd actually lost, lost trust in it. And uh, so I didn't really give everything to it from that point on, like I'd had done before. But uh, so I, and I suffered in all these different ways and areas. And it just takes one comment from someone really close to you can really get a good view of you, can actually sort of open those doors to what was really going on. And back then I didn't have the communication skills to get that. Good Humans was presented by me, Cooper Chapman. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.